Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The prices insurers pay for healthcare services are the result of negotiations between the insurer and the healthcare provider. Now, larger employers who almost always self-insure, meaning they pay for the claims associated with their own employees, would seem to have a strong incentive to negotiate lower prices and even adopt novel approaches designed to reduce costs, things like value-based payment, reference pricing, centers of excellence. But despite this financial incentive, with some notable exceptions, there's little evidence that employers are successful at negotiating lower prices. How do negotiated prices among self-funded employers compare to the prices negotiated by insurers for their insured products? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Aditi Sen, Director of Research and Policy at the Healthcare Cost Institute. Dr. Sen and colleagues published a paper in the September 2023 issue of Health Affairs comparing prices paid for services in self-insured plans with prices in fully insured plans. They found that prices were moderately higher in self-insured plans for most of the services examined, raising questions about the ability of employers to successfully negotiate lower prices. We'll discuss these findings and their implications in today's episode. Dr. Sen, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So this is uh, important work because everyone wants prices to come down, and uh, in the commercial side of the world, they are set in the market. So how the market functions and what it yields is absolutely central to any uh, goals of of containing costs in healthcare. Your study compares prices for self-insured and fully insured plans, and I'm sure many of our listeners know about these two types of products, but maybe not everyone. So if you could just give us a little overview of what it means to be self-funded or self-insured, what it means to be fully insured, and maybe a little bit about where we find these two products, um, that would be a great start. Sure. Yeah, happy to. So I think to take a step back before kind of getting into the weeds of self and fully insured plans, I think it's really important to remember that close to half of the U.S. population has health insurance coverage through an employer. So that's either their own employer or as a dependent. And over half of firms offer health insurance to at least some of their employees. And so the population covered by employer-sponsored insurance, or ESI, is bigger than that covered by any other kind of form of health insurance in this country. And so this is a really big and important market for us to understand. You know, it involves employers in all different kinds of industries and firms. It involves state and federal government, insurance companies, hospitals, and physicians. And of course, you know, over 150 million people who have this kind of coverage. So that's all to say this is a really important market to study. And uh, employers in this setting determine which health plans employees have access to. And one dimension of this choice is whether to offer self-insured plans, fully insured plans, or potentially a combination. Uh, And as you uh, were saying in the introduction, when they choose to self-insure, employers are basically paying for the health services that their employees receive directly rather than, say, purchasing an insurance plan for them. So in these plans, the employer is really assuming the financial responsibility for the costs of enrollees' medical claims. In in contrast, with fully insured plans, the employer is 
basically buying an insurance plan from an insurance company for their employees, and then it's the insurance company that bears the risk. In terms of kind of the prevalence um, of the sort of two types of plans, now we have about two-thirds of people with employer-sponsored insurance in self-insured plans, and that share has grown uh, over time. Self-funding is especially common among these larger firms since they can sort of spread the risk of potentially expensive healthcare claims over a larger population. So what we see is currently about 80% of employees in large firms, that's 200 and more uh, employees, are in a self-funded plan compared with about 20% of workers in smaller firms. So I appreciate that you kicked us off by reminding us how big this market is. Uh, it's not, and uh, that's that is the backdrop here. Um, and given that it's big and consequential, it covers so many people and so many dollars in the health system flow through this. Um, I want you to give us a little bit of a picture of negotiation here, because um, when you're negotiating on behalf of your own employees, that's what the self-funded employer is doing. The insurer is negotiating on behalf of their insured population. Um, but the em- employers tend to go through third-party administrators, which are insurance companies. So it's it's often kind of the same people just negotiate on behalf of kind of two different products. So if we're trying to understand the outcome of this negotiation, these two different kinds of negotiation, what's sort of the same about them and, and why might we think they would yield different results? Yeah. So I think the really key distinction between these two types of plans is who is at risk, right? So in the self-funded plans, it's the employer that's at risk for the costs associated with the employee's healthcare use. Uh, whereas when they offer fully funded plans, they are not at risk. It's the insurance company right, that's bearing the risk. And so, you know, as we said, since self-insured employers are at risk, they have this incentive to manage the costs of their employees' healthcare services. They could do that by reducing use of services. They could do that by reducing the price of services um, or you know, potentially some combination of those two factors. And so it's that incentive to lower costs that leads us to think that we might see lower prices right, in self-insured plans. Uh, so that's why prices might be different. And you know, why might they be similar? I think the kind of real key reason is that in actuality, employers' ability to negotiate lower rates is pretty limited. Um, and I will just hi- highlight kind of three factors hindering these negotiations. So first, when we think about the negotiations, let's consider kind of both sides. So one side, we have hospitals and other healthcare providers, physicians, and uh, other providers. And we know from a lot of evidence that these provider markets are increasingly consolidated, over time. And these kind of high concentration levels give the providers a lot of leverage, which they can use to basically keep prices high. So that's one side. On the other side of the negotiation are the self-funded employers who have this incentive to negotiate lower prices. Um, And in an earlier paper, co-authors and I look at the market power on this employer side. uh, And the basic takeaway is that most employers don't have substantial market share. Uh, which can make it really hard to kind of negotiate effectively with the healthcare providers. Uh, as you said, another factor is that in a lot of cases, employers are not even doing 
nego- the actual negotiation with the providers. They're relying on these third-party administrators to conduct provider contract negotiations, set rates, and all of that. But the TPAs are not at risk, right? The employers are at risk. So the TPAs have pretty limited incentives to negotiate. Uh, and then the last factor I'll highlight is that it's basically impossible uh, currently to get kind of real-time price information for healthcare services in our system right now, even for those employers who are paying the bills, right, for self-funded plans. And so, you know, without access to that kind of information, it's not too surprising that employers have limited ability to identify and really target uh, those high prices. So I think to kind of wrap it up, we have this sort of combination of incentives, which could lead to lower prices in self-insured plans. And then we have market dynamics, which may limit the self-insurer's ability to negotiate um, and result in, you know, similar or higher prices in self-insured plans. And so that's really what we're trying to get at in this paper is to see in the data kind of in some ways how these forces net out in terms of actual price differences between self uh, and fully insured plans. Well, that's a great setup for my next question, which is, what'd you find? So you were comparing prices uh, between self-funded and insured products. Uh, what, what's the answer? Yeah. So as you said, we compared prices in self-insured and fully insured plans for about 19 common healthcare services. So these are things like procedures, colonoscopies, endoscopies, uh, lab tests, like your complete kind of blood count type tests, uh, imaging services like MRIs, chest x-rays, and then for ER visits and for physician office visits. So our goal was really to look at this kind of price comparison across a range of services. Um, But of course, you know, it's not all the services, so it may not be fully representative. But that was the goal, is to look at kind of a range of common services. And our main finding is that when you just look at prices in the two kinds of plans, for most of the services we studied, prices were higher in self-insured plans. We saw the largest difference in prices for the procedures for endoscopies, which had about 8% higher prices in self-insured plans, colonoscopies, which is fairly similar, about 7%, uh, for the blood tests that we looked at, and then for some of the moderate kind of severity uh, ER visits. So that was kind of the initial finding. Uh, But because these self-insured and fully insured plans kind of might differ in ways that are related to prices, for example, benefit design, which we can't directly see. We then decided to control for a variety of factors. So you can think patient age, where in the country they live, whether their plan is a PPO, an HMO, or what the type of plan was. And then controlling for those factors, we estimated these price differences across self-insured and fully insured plans. And what we found is that the price differences were directionally consistent, but they're considerably smaller once we controlled for those factors. And in particular, we found that controlling for whether a plan was an HMO, PPO, or other plan type made a big difference. And so what this kind of suggests to us is that there's some interaction between the self-insured and fully insured status of the plans, the specific plan type, for example, HMO or PPO, and these price differentials um, that that we're seeing. Okay, so sort of the top line is prices are higher for self-funded, but actually when you start controlling for things, it, 
the picture gets a little narrower. And then you also did this provider fixed effects analysis. And again, without getting too deep into the methods, if you could at least explain what that approach it uh, lets you measure and what the results were once you added that factor. Yeah, so this analysis uh, is really motivated by the fact that any of these price differences we see between self-insured and fully insured plans could be due to differences in which providers are included in their networks. So for example, maybe self-insured plans just have higher priced providers in their networks. Uh, Or it could be because there are actually different prices with the same physician providing the services for people who are in self-insured versus fully insured plans. And so what the provider fixed effect analysis allows us to do is to really isolate and look at that within physician variation in prices. So for the same physician, are we seeing different prices for self-insured and fully insured enrollees? And what we found was that once we included these provider fixed effects, the price differences were a lot more mixed across services, uh, suggesting that there might be some differences in self-insured and fully insured plan networks, potentially related to that plan type finding um, that are driving the kind of unadjusted results that we see. Okay, well, this is a complicated picture, which isn't terribly surprising, but I appreciate your ability to explain it. Uh, I'd like to talk about some of the implications, sort of where we go with this. Uh, We'll do that after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Aditi Sen about the prices uh, negotiated by self-funded employers relative to those negotiated by insured health insurance plans. Before the break, we got the picture that overall the prices are higher for self-funded employers. But then once you start breaking it down and, and controlling for plan design, looking at uh, individual providers, those uh, findings become a little bit more complicated. Um, But let's go back to sort of the underlying question that uh, motivated the study, which is, given this strong incentive that employers, self-funded employers have to reduce prices, reduce the spending on behalf of their employees, um, how effectively do they utilize the tools uh, that they have? And before the break, we talked a little bit about, earlier on, we talked a little bit about sort of the, the different approaches or the different incentives facing insurers and employers. But maybe you could say a little bit more about the actual tools available to employers if they want to be more aggressive in, in uh, containing healthcare costs. Yeah. So I think what I want to highlight uh, coming out of these kind of somewhat complex, uh, complex nuanced results in the paper is that there is kind of a key message, which is that prices in self-insured plans certainly do not appear to be lower than prices in fully insured plans, which is what we might expect if employers were really fully able to and acting on these incentives to reduce costs. So I think that this suggests that employers are generally not able to negotiate lower prices on behalf of their employees. And I don't think this should be really surprising to listeners of this podcast in particular, right? This reflects the dynamics in healthcare markets that we 
uh, know about and have talked about already a bit, which, you know, highly consolidated pr- providers who have leverage to set prices, reliance on these intermediaries who may have misaligned incentives, and this lack of real-time information on prices that is really foundational to any efforts to manage spending. So in terms of tools uh, that employers may have, I think that there are a few. So first, I think employers can take a more active role in demanding and seeking out this information and data on healthcare prices and use that really are the absolute minimum necessary to conduct any sort of price negotiations, right? You can't effectively negotiate prices if you don't even know what the prices are to begin with. Uh, To increase leverage, we're starting to see some um, instances where private and sometimes public and private employers kind of join forces in sort of coalitions to negotiate prices, increases their leverage on that kind of negotiation that we were talking about earlier. Uh, There's an example of this kind of a purchasing alliance in Colorado, and I think that's it's kind of starting to be talked about more and more, especially at the state level. Uh, and then, of course, there are these sort of bigger picture efforts that employers could engage in with policymakers to kind of more broadly target these high prices. So I have to say, you know, I've been in this business for a long time, and employers have been telling us forever that they want autonomy to negotiate prices. And then some of them join these quite sophisticated purchasing groups. Some of them are big enough to have in-house talent uh, who can lead efforts in healthcare, and I've worked with some of those leaders over the decades. Um, but it just feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. Uh, the the employers have the ability because they're exempt from state regulation under ERISA. They have the ability to kind of do what they want, um, but they're not showing us that they can be super successful. Meanwhile, I have to say. I could tell the exact same story with insurers who talk about how, you know, they have their special sauce and their AI and their utilization uh, reviews and their, you know, sophisticated panels of tiering and all this kind of stuff. And part of me just wonders, and maybe this is, a, I know this is beyond the scope of your your paper, but part of me just wonders, like, even at the biggest gaps you're talking about here, 7 8%, are we just sort of looking at this the wrong way, thinking that any of these purchasers, given the consolidation, given the information gaps that you describe, are, are we just kind of naively thinking that this market can yield lower prices when in fact it just never is going to? Yeah. I mean, I think that we know this, the employer-sponsored health insurance market, these private health insurance markets are much less regulated right, than public insurance like Medicare and Medicaid. And they don't have most notably that price setting, right? In Medicare and Medicaid, we have administered pricing. In the employer-sponsored market and commercial markets, more generally, we rely on the system of competition and negotiation um, among employers and insurers and providers that you're talking about uh, to achieve fair prices. And, you know, I think that this study, as well as a range of other evidence over time, suggests that this current system of negotiation, for the most part, does not work to achieve these goals, right? We know that in most markets, neither the employers nor the insurers have negotiating leverage, as you were saying, to counter the highly consolidated hospitals and other healthcare providers. And so as a result, we have healthcare prices that are paid 
you know, by those with employer-sponsored insurance, by their insurers, their employers, uh, that are on average more than twice what Medicare would pay for the same services, the same hospitals. And these, you know, high and continuously rising prices lead to, of course, difficulties accessing services for people, um, but are also a big financial burden for employers and you know, for state governments as well, right, who are, have to provide this kind of healthcare coverage for their own uh, employees. Okay, so I'm going to quickly tip my hat to two types of people in the audience who I know are like pulling their hair out as they listen to this. Uh, the, the economists who would say prices may be high, but that doesn't mean they're too high. That just means that's what the market is yielding. And then, you know, the hospitals in particular, but other providers who talk about cost shifting and say, if, if we weren't getting the high revenue from these payers, uh, we wouldn't be able to provide the services to at the low prices that we do for Medicare and Medicaid. Those are topics we will save for another day, but I certainly don't want to pretend that there aren't listeners who think that those are highly relevant to this conversation. So I'll drop them in on their behalf. But let's just set those uh, reactions aside for a moment and say, if we do believe that there is an affordability problem in healthcare which I think it's pretty hard to argue with, whether these are the right or the wrong prices. People are having a tough time affording them. Employers are, taxpayers are, families are. Um, given what you're saying about these markets, where does this take you? We're a policy journal, and so I'm um, not asking you to endorse a particular policy prescription here, but I do wonder sort of what are the policy levers that you think about that might uh, change some of the outcomes of this? And what have you seen that you think is at least uh, worth more exploration? Yeah, I mean, hopefully they're not going to kick me out of the health economics uh, society. For <laughs> um, I think you're for safe. This, I think I you're think, safe. I, I think I'm okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we, as you were saying, we know that these high prices have a lot of implications and we're seeing it kind of on a number of different fronts. They make it really hard for people to access care. And even people with pretty generous health insurance feel these rising costs. They have growing premiums. They're paying their full cost of care when they have, you know, when they're in the deductible phase of their insurance. Um, and we have data from KFF that shows that 40% of households don't have enough liquid assets, even to pay them kind of mid-range typical deductible. Uh, and, you know, we have a lot of work at HCCI as well as other um, you know, folks in this area showing that rising prices are the primary contributor to growing healthcare costs. So I think that, you know, to take us kind of back to the beginning of our conversation and set up this policy, our considerations about policy, I think that this you know, market system of employer-sponsored insurance is really significant for a huge swath of the American population, kids, working-age adults, those close to retirement. So whether and how this market works is really critically important to people's lives, families, as well as you know, broader labor markets and healthcare markets. Uh, so I think that you know, there, are, there are a number of sort of relevant factors when we think about it from a policy perspective. One, as you were noting earlier, is that federal law exempts these self-insured plans from most state insurance laws. So that includes mandated benefits, other consumer protections, uh, submission of data to all payer claims databases. 
And so employer decisions about self-funding impact employees, not just through prices and benefit design, but also because they are not receiving potentially many of the benefits uh, of these state policies. And so I think that is a policy context where it makes it really urgent to understand uh, how this market is working for, um, for enrollees who are getting their coverage in this way. And there's still so many unanswered questions about this market, despite the fact that it has implications for, uh, for so many of us. You know, we actually know very little about how employers, insurance companies, and healthcare providers set up their networks or set their prices or how employers choose which plans to offer. So I think in thinking about kind of potential federal and state policies to improve affordability and accessibility for people with commercial insurance, answering these questions is really foundational. So I'd say that the kind of key policy implications coming from this work are first to contribute to this understanding of how the current system of ESI works uh, and doesn't work, um, and to really motivate both additional research to answer some of these other kind of foundational questions um, and to motivate additional policy action to address high health care prices. And I think there's actually a lot of really innovative uh, efforts, particularly at the state level, to think about measuring and addressing high health care prices uh, and to kind of identify in particular prices that are outlier prices or are really unjustifiable to identify places where we can uh, address, for example, price differentials across sites of care that really don't make sense and where people may not even be aware that they're you know, going to pay three more times for their lab tests because they happen to be in a hospital outpatient department than a physician's, department, a physician's office or where they're going to see their primary care doctor and the primary care doctor gets acquired by a hospital and now they're going to pay a facility fee. So I think to really kind of identify these entry points to addressing high prices uh, is really important. And, you know, then to understand kind of more about how this, how this system and market is working, working for people and where we can uh, improve affordability and access. Well, I really appreciate the way you took this conversation because, you know, we have lots and lots of articles published in health affairs on Medicare, particularly where you have federal data. Medicaid data have been a little harder, but there have been huge investments there. Commercial data, there are, as you know, various data sets out there, but they are harder to get to and um, have limitations, all set data too. Uh, we're, of course, also at this uh, emergent point with new federal transparency laws that we're starting to see coming online. Uh, actual negotiated prices in ways that we didn't see before, but uh, we still have to rely very heavily on these uh, claims data sets like you have at HCCI. So uh, we're, our ability to understand the dynamics of this market, I'd say, is, is uh, far less than the stakes in the functioning of the market. Um, as you noted at the outset, this is the largest segment of health insurance comes through the sector, and yet from a understanding of how it works and how prices uh, are set or negotiated, it's, it's at the bottom of the barrel relative to other systems. So we have a long way to go. I really appreciate the contribution you've made here and uh, the paper that you've written that we've been able to publish. Thank you for being my guest today on Health Policy. Thank you so much for having me and allowing to share our work. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy.